you know, these stories are really powerful and we need to rewrite these stories because it just doesn't have to be this way. Periods are not supposed to be painful. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I have a conversation with Lenise Brothers. She is a registered nutritionist, a yoga teacher, and she is a specialist in women's health and hormones, in particular, the menstrual cycle. And she's the host of the Period Story podcast. She's also the author of the book, You Can Have a Better Period. And you might guess what we spoke about uh, today, all about menstruation. So this is going to be a really important conversation for any woman who is still in her menstruating years, or if you have a daughter or a niece or a friend that you would like to empower to optimize her menstrual cycle, irrespective of whether or not she wants children or not, that's not the conversation that we're having. We're talking about this as a fertility marker and as a, as the fifth vital sign. So what did we talk about? Well, we first started with her own story, uh, her noticing her mother and her aunt and then herself having terrible periods and thinking that these were just common, you know, part of the, um, you know, the treachery, if you will, of being uh, a woman. And then we move into the conversation based on her story, are periods supposed to be painful and why we have so much shame around our period. We move into discussing how the menstrual cycle is a vital sign and how we should be irrespective of desire for children working to optimize the menstrual cycle if you are in your reproductive years. We talk about what a normal bleed week is. So we talk about quality and quantity and length and all of the things that you might expect and that you've probably heard from me. And if you've read my book, you'll see that there's a lot of overlap here as well. We talk about menopausal symptoms. We talk about thyroid. We talk about ferritin, which of course uh, leads us into a discussion of the sort of anti-meat narrative that we are now seeing pushed by authorities who, in my opinion, have no <laughs> no business being the authority figure on telling us when and how and what to eat. We talk about the demonization of food and how you can, you know, if you're not sophisticated, let's say, in understanding the big picture, how you might pull out one little sort of fact, and we use fructose as an example here, uh, how you might pull out, let's say, the fructose in fruit and get carried away and maybe lead to the erroneous conclusion that fruit is bad for you, which of course it is not. We discuss the difference between PMS and PMDD and nutritional 
interventions and how long it takes to actually improve your period. All in all, I had the pleasure of having an advanced copy of Lenise's book, and I would say that it is very well written, very easy to understand. You'll find the clickable link in the show notes. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Lenise Brothers. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, Lenise Brothers, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Me too. And, you know, you were so generous uh, enough to send me an advanced copy of your book. Uh, And we are going to be talking about that today, how to have a better period. And you are a woman after my own heart, let's say, Uh, my book and your book. As I was reading through it, I was like, oh, that's right. Oh, I like that. Yes, we have to make sure that we talk about that. Um, (laughs) And as 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 we're going through, I thought, you know, before we sort of dive in, uh, maybe it might be for my listeners who may have not have heard of you or your work before, uh, a little bit of your origin story in terms of what got you into this work. Uh, we all, I, I find that all women in sort of the period and menstrual space, we all have a, a unique uh, sort of experience, uh, experience menstruation. Um, as women, there's usually a catalyst um, that sort of pushes us into inquiry, further inquiry and curiosity. And I'd love for you to share with uh, my listeners how you got into working with women to help them have better menstrual cycles. Yeah. So I love that you call it an origin story because I got into Marvel movies during the pandemic with my son. So we just watched a new one. So I loved that. So my personal origin story started with my very first period. And to kind of set the scene a little bit, my my sort of experience seeing my mother having very, very painful periods, very long periods. Like she would have periods that would last a month or longer. And then seeing the pain that she was in. And then on the other end of the scale, seeing my maternal grandmother, what she was going through um, during her, her menopause and the hot flashes and just the kind of struggle that she had with in terms of her body, just feeling out of, she always described it as feeling out of control. So seeing that, that was kind of my, my template for menstrual health and beyond. So when I got my first period, I, it was very painful and I thought, okay, well, that's normal. And so I had these periods, they were very heavy, they were very painful. And 
just kind of going along, trying to manage them the best that I could. My mom didn't really give me that much of an education. I kind of, even though I saw what she was doing, she kind of just gave me some tampons and just, I just got on with it. But then I started to see what my friends were experiencing and it was nothing like my own period. And I thought, well, what's, what's going on here? Like, you know, why, why am I feeling like this? And I finally convinced my mom to take me to the doctor because in my family, there's a real distrust of doctors. I know you're a doctor, but, (laughs) um, but understandably so, but understandably so. Yeah. Yeah. And I finally, it took me a while, but I finally convinced her to take me to the doctor. We got there. She said, the doctor said, well, this is what periods are supposed to be like. Um, Here's some, here's a prescription for birth control. Here's a prescription for an aproxen, which is, you know, very strong painkillers. Off you go. And so I went off, I was taking these painkillers, you know, as like a teenager on these very strong painkillers. It just kind of blows my mind thinking about it now. Fortunately for me, I was very bad at taking the pill. So I just never really like got on with it. So I don't have a kind of post pill story because I just didn't take it properly. But this whole experience planted a seed in my mind that I that there could be something that I could do to change my menstrual health. And then as I went through my life, I tried different things. Um, I was a vegetarian for a long while, and that just led to a cascade of other issues for me, anxiety, depression. I was a bad vegetarian. Um, and, And then eventually I decided to retrain and I retrained as a nutritionist after 15 years working in advertising. And I decided to specialize in menstrual health because of my own experience. And I just knew I could help other people not have to experience the same thing that I did, you know, not have to just accept that they would be on birth control for the rest of their life. So that's my origin story. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think that your story is so, it is going to resonate with so many women listening to this because so often what you just described is what happens with mothers and daughters. So the daughter complains about having some aberrant symptoms. She's having heavy bleeding. She's having a lot of cramping, you know, what pick your menstrual symptom. We go to an allopathic physician and the solution is, well, we're not going to, we're not going to necessarily ask the question, why is this happening? We are going to ask, we are going to ask the question, what is the best medication to alleviate your symptoms? And I think that There's a time and a place for that. But I think that the inquiry alongside with giving you some temporary relief with the naproxen, maybe temporarily, maybe we should be looking at, is there any hormonal disruptions? Do we have any uh, liver issue? Do we have like, what's, what is going on? Mineral deficiencies. You know, you mentioned you were a bad vegetarian. So often uh, in my practice, when I've had women who've been V it's more, I would say more vegan, uh, maybe more so than vegetarian, but we see 
vast, the vast majority of them have some type of mineral deficiency. Uh, and we've had, um, uh, Dr. Kelly Brogan's been on the show. And one of the things she was saying was a lot of the depression that she would see in practice was actually a B12 uh, or a B vitamin and some like B6, B12 uh, vitamin deficiency. So I, you know, I think that what you're saying is going to resonate with so many women because that's our story. It's mm. culturally very common to downplay menstrual pain. In fact, it's so common that we're we're used to seeing advertisements around, you know, like the mydols and like not, you know, calling out any particular, you know, drug or whatever, but it's like have a better period, just take this, you know, painkiller versus yeah. what you said which I thought we should maybe underline, which is I thought this was normal. Mm. And it it's not in fact normal, but it is common, right? Yeah. And you can see from your lineage, right? You see grandma, you see mom who had a bad uh, experience with their own menstrual health. So you think, well, I, it, that, that's just normal for me or, and my family. Mm. So I guess my next question is, are periods supposed to be painful? And can we, how can we begin to educate our mothers and our beautiful daughters, right? So when they get to that point of going to the doctor, that they don't misinterpret their experience. It's so interesting that you asked this question because we, we do kind of absorb through the cultural conversation that periods are supposed to be painful. And then when you have someone like me, someone like you saying, well, actually they're not supposed to be painful, maybe some light cramping, maybe some like twinges, you know, but you're not supposed to be downing painkillers your whole, your whole period. That's not normal. But when you have someone saying that people get upset because they, we've been taught that periods are supposed to be a time where we're inca incapacitated, we're, uh, we're angry, we're moody, we're full of rage, we're bloated. You know, what, whatever symptom it is, you name it, that's what we're supposed to be experiencing. And then when we flip it on its head and say, well, actually, you know, you can be fine during your, during your period. You might be a little tired. You might be a little bit more inward looking, but it doesn't have to be a, a chaotic time. People find that really challenging because it's these stories that we learn. And then we start to repeat these stories and then repeat them down to our daughters, our cousins, our nieces, you know, even, even like the male members of a family, it's like, oh, she's on her period. Yes you know, oh, she's, you know, she's going to be upset. I better, you know, I'm going to be walking on eggshells. And, you know, these stories are really powerful and we need to rewrite these stories because it just doesn't have to be this way. Periods are not supposed to be painful. I love what you just said about the male component to it, because yes, we certainly, we get the stories from our girlfriends and uninformed teachers and our peers and maybe our mothers, but you also have that story. Of, oh, she's on the, you know, insert derogatory term here, right? Like she's mm -hmm. on the rag. She's, you yeah. know, she's ragging now. She's, you know, yeah. she has her period and, um, you know, or, or, you know, other, other sort of derogatory, let's say uh, classifications yeah. of what it means to be a menstruating woman. 
and kind of digging deeper uh, in your book, I really liked the, your, uh, the book is called You Can Have a Better Period. Uh, you started off with some stats, which I thought we might double click and expand on a little bit, uh, just around this topic of culture and menstruation. And I'll just read some facts um, from your book here. 97% of women hid their period products. So let's say they were in school and, you know, they, and I've, I did like, I do this, you know, like you tuck the little tampon in your back pocket or the pad or whatever, um, because they thought that that was the normal thing to do. That if anybody else maybe knew that they were menstruating, like they were in their bleed week, that that would be, you know, super embarrassing. And I remember feeling that way as well. 76% uh, felt embarrassed and 56% felt shame around their menstrual cycle, particularly in their bleed week. I think that those numbers are incredible. I, and I think it's, it speaks to, you know, why we're sort of scurrying about making sure that nobody knows that we're on our period, trying to pretend, right? Like nothing's wrong. Oh, do you don't have to walk around eggshells around me? Like I'm fine. You know, like I uh, strong, like bull, you know, like I like to sort of <laughs> channel my inner Russian, you know, woman and be like, you know, I, no, I can deal with it. Like, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to do anything. And I, and I think that there's not an allowance. As you said, maybe you're a little weepier, maybe you're a little more lethargic. We feel some cramping in the uterus. That's absolutely normal and expected, mm. but that doesn't mean that the whole world is, you, you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be uh, not able to engage in your activities of daily living, like mm. interacting with people, going to work, being able to exercise. And we'll talk about modifying exercises today too. But what what when you were doing research for this book what was your first initial thoughts when you were coming across this data i want to say that i was surprised but i wasn't it just verified all of the the thinking that i had been doing and it actually made me happy that i was able to introduce this new narrative or continue this new narrative that is starting to emerge around menstrual health because you know we don't we don't need to feel shame around our periods and it makes me feel really sad that we get taught that you know menstrual the menstrual blood is dirty or it's disgusting and it's something that we need to hide um, you know, we get taught that even our bodies, they're kind of like a bit unwieldy during our period. All of these messages that we get taught and the, the survey that you mentioned, I found it so fascinating because, because it, was, it was actual data to back up what I had already been seeing anecdotally. Um, what's really interesting is that there's this new survey that came out recently where um, 2,000 British women between the ages of 18 to 50, they were surveyed and 85% of them wanted to know more about their menstrual cycle and about their period. They didn't feel like they were taught enough in school. So there's this shame narrative, but equally what I find really compelling is that there's also this desire to learn more. And you were kind of seeing that if you look on social media and actually on TikTok, which I find fascinating, there's this, if you go into TikTok and you search hashtag period talk, there's just an explosion of content. And I think last week um, there was some research done that, and found that a lot of British teenagers and 
um, women in their 20s were getting a lot of their education on menstrual health from TikTok. And, you know, we can have a conversation about the credibility of some of that information. But I think what's really powerful is that we're starting to reverse these narratives and people are starting to seek actively seek out information and change their thinking around their menstrual health. I love that. And in your book, you also talk about how, you know, more, we'll say ancient civilizations, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, the Apaches, the Hindus uh, in India, they had all of these beautiful rituals around a menstruating woman. And I think that there's, a, you know, a tide, if you'll excuse or in, or accept my pun, yes. uh, there's maybe a crimson tide uh, of a, <laughs> a return back to honoring and having reverence for what it is that, uh, uh, we as women um, are able to produce, right? Yeah. Where every month, right? I can say this, you know, talk about this in the book and I'm sure we're going to get into it now too. We create an organ, like how freaking crazy and how amazing is that, right? So um, let, let's kind of lead in. Uh, your book is... Uh, so well-written, uh, if I haven't said it enough, very, very accessible, which I really like. Sometimes, you know, you said TikTok. So of course we're trying to make things like quick and punchy and catchy, uh, but there's also, I think, a need once there's that spark of interest, let's say, um, for there to be a need to go deeper and to really understand the science. And you do a really great job of doing that without being, uh, we'll say too teachy, like to, you know, to like, this is the whiteboard and here's the, you know. <laughs> So why don't you explain uh, to uh, our listeners why we need to be looking at the menstrual cycle? I always call it your hormonal report card. You get a report card at the end of the, or the beginning of the month, you know, about how your stress management, your eating, your sleeping, your exercise, your movement, the, sort of the, uh, a lay of the land, let's say, through the bleed week. Why do we want to be looking at our menstrual cycle as our fifth vital sign? Well, if you think about your other vital signs, so if you're, you know, you're out of, out of breath all the time or your heart rate is going all over the place, you're immediately going to be concerned and you're immediately going to want to investigate that. I think we need to think about our menstrual cycle and our period in the same way. It's a vital sign. It's an indicator of our health status and, you know, lots of things, as you mentioned, affect that. So if you're overly stressed, if there's some sort of nutrient deficiency, if you're exercising too much, even trauma, all of that affects your, your menstrual health. And so this is where education is really powerful. It's just firstly, knowing how important your period is um, and not, you know, for example, if it goes missing, that's not something to celebrate. That's something to really dig deeper into. Um, so, you know, you have an idea of what's working. You know, we're not talking about being machines and constantly optimizing our body, but we're talking about being more aware of ourselves as cyclical beings. And this period is part of a wider, very beautiful cycle that once we have the education, we can harness and get a lot of power out of. So just knowing more about your period is the first step to being able to just live, live a better life and feel better about yourself. 
I like that. And I think that, um, you know, I always say that the period is like the popular girl. She gets all the attention, right? We always forget about ovulation. There's that, <laughs> yeah. that, that girl, but she's also really important as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the bleed week because we do, I always get a lot of questions about this. Uh, and I know that you'll be able to give us some good insight here. So when we think about what's normal versus what's common, and we're talking about the bleed week specifically. So we're shedding the endometrial lining. There's no fertilized egg. And we are either using a, you know, a menstrual cup or using tampons or using pads, what have you. What is, and we can kind of go through these in tandem, uh, normal, what should we expect, let's say, at the beginning of our bleed week in terms of flow and color of the blood? And how does that change over the course of the, uh, of the, of your bleed time? Yeah. So I think we should really be expecting a very even flow. You know, some, some women, they, they experience a very heavy flow in the first two days and then they describe it like a tap turning off. Ideally, we want it to be fairly even and then gradually tailing off with not a huge amount of spotting. It's just, you know, it's just gradually ending and then that's that's finished. You're not looking for, you know, you don't want dark, very, very dark, rusty blood. You're looking for more of a cranberry color. Maybe it's a bit darker. If it's brown, especially in the beginning, a lot of brown spotting, that's something to investigate. But the ideal situation, it's bright. It's maybe a little bit of a darker cranberry. There's no or very few clots. You know, your clotting is a sign that you need to investigate what's going on with your estrogen, as I say over here, estrogen and progesterone balance. Um, so that's what we're looking for in terms of cl- color and even flow. Um, you know, you're not look, you're not wanting to change your menstrual product every hour. You know, it should be something that you feel that you can manage, especially overnight, where you're not having to get up and change whatever you're using. You're not kind of leaking. It's all feels really manageable. Not maybe not easy, but it feels manageable. Yes. Yeah. And the color, um, uh, what I often find is many women will report, as you're saying, that cranberry color, like that dark or deep, rich red. And then towards the end of your period, as it's tailing off, then we start to see more of that oxid, like that oxidized blood. So that kind of rusty brown, that's normal. But what you're referring to when it's kind of brown right from the beginning is that potentially if you're, and if you're spotting as well, maybe there's some, you know, we can, we'll get to it, but the luteal phase potentially deficiency or not enough progesterone where we're starting to get some of that spotting before the actual bleed is happening. Mm. Um, talk to us a little bit about, um, uh, energy during that week, what is normal? Um, and we'll, we can maybe contrast that with what is common, uh, our temperature, uh, during that week. And uh, we'll skip the cervical fluid because we'll get into that. Um, we're not going to be evaluating cervical fluid when, we're, when yeah. we're bleeding. We do that in week two, three and, and four. Yeah. So energy is a really interesting one. And if we, I like to use the analogy of thinking about our energy as in as if you're depositing it or withdrawing it from a bank account. So if you think about your whole menstrual cycle, you want to be judicious about your energy. This is the time where your naturally is go- energy is naturally going to be at its lowest point. But that doesn't mean that 
you're you're supposed to be exhausted and you know struggling to live your normal life it's a time where you just might be a little bit muted energy wise you know you're kind of dialing it down in terms of um your exercise really listening to your body maybe you know you can do your your typical your typical exercise classes, but you're not having high expectations for yourself. It's really a time where you're tuning in, you're slowing down and you're giving it your body what it needs because the more you push yourself, the more depleted you, you will be. And I see this actually with women who, you know, they love that, that mid cycle energy peak and they push and they push and they push, but then when it comes to their and at the end of their menstrual cycle and then their period, they've got nothing left in the tank because it's just they're not kind of make they're making lots of withdrawals on their energy bank account. I'm not sure about this analogy. Um, they're not you know making any enough deposits. So this is the time where we can slow down and really kind of replenish and restore and look look inward. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Uh, you asked about temperature, and I, I think this is really interest, interesting because I'm seeing a lot of women recently who are getting a lot of period sweats. And I find that fascinating because my mind immediately goes to, okay, what's happening with the thyroid, you know, and the thyroid is so, it's so misunderstood and it's so misunderstood in terms of the connection with our reproductive organs, with the ovaries and this whole, you know, hypothalamus thyroid ovarian axis and you know if you're sweating a lot during a period you want to just say well actually what's going on with my thyroid is there an imbalance there am i actually adding eating enough nutrients to support my thyroid health like the iodine the iron the selenium like dig a little bit deeper work with a practitioner and dig a little bit deeper because you shouldn't be you know, sweating. Like I'm talking to women who are soaking their bed sheets during their, during like their akin, period. Akin to what we might call hot flashes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting because when we talk about another uh, area that's mishandled, <laughs> it, would <be> thi- <laughs> it would be thyroid health. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there's not, again, uh, the connection is often not made. Uh, one of the things that I often recommend for women is looking at their ferritin levels. Um, and mm. we don't have to necessarily get into all the weeds with thyroid because it can get very complicated very quickly. But to your point, the, you know, the main role of the thyroid is to help 
cells, you know, with T active, you know, the active form T3 to, to take up substrate to be able to make energy. So if you have a sluggish thyroid, uh, and that might be because your iron levels are low, maybe you're not having enough meat, you're not storing enough, iron, like what, whatever it is, um, that can absolutely affect uh, your bleed week. And one of the things, uh, you know, my, um, my heritage is, um, uh, Portuguese and, and Lebanese, but on the Lebanese side, on the middle Eastern side, it was like, you have your, we have to have blood building foods now. Like now we have to have lamb and we have to have red meat and we have to have broth. Like that's what we were consuming. Uh, or at least my grandmother, uh, you know, was, was making for me, um, during my, the week where I was, uh, where I was bleeding. And I think that that's often lost, right? Because if you think about, we're getting rid of that endometrial lining, like your body has been making this five-star hotel for mm. a month. And now all of those nutrients, all of those things that have been building up in that lining, you're getting rid of. Uh, and part of that, of course, like when you're losing blood, this is why a lot of men are, we, we say to our men, you should give blood every three months or so to mimic that re that renewal. Because one of the beautiful things that women have is we renew our blood every month. We don't need to give blood maybe as often, of course, ethically, you might, you might want to do that. But, you know, in terms of a physiological need, men might need to do that more often than women. Um, but we're losing a lot of that, like kind of back to the, you know, we're losing a lot of that iron, which also can absolutely directly affect thyroid function, mm. which is going to lead to symptoms that you're talking about where you're having these women with these hot flashes, you know, that, that almost appear like menopause, you know, these yeah. sort of menopausal types of uh, symptoms. Yeah. And then you kind of get the panic, especially if they're in their late thirties and forties oh my gosh, is this perimenopause? You know, do I need to go on HRT? And in the UK at the moment, there's a really big focus in the media on HRT because there is a shortage. Um, and so there's a, it's a big part of the kind of national conversation. And you kind of have to talk these women off the ledge and say, you know, it's not necessarily perimenopause, you know, let's just dig a little bit deeper um, and see what's going on. But just I just wanted to touch on what you said about iron, because I think that's really interesting, because, again, this thinking about this focus at the moment on moving towards a plant based approach, I find it really tricky because you meet a lot of women who have become vegetarian or just eating less meat because they've been told it's better for the environment or it's better for their health. And there's a, almost a kind of like education process that you need to go through where you need to talk to them about the different forms of iron, you know, what helps the body use iron well, and actually, you know, how important it is to actually eat really high quality red meat, because that's how we, that's the best best absorbable form of iron. And it's interesting how much this kind of anti-meat message has been absorbed. And when you say, well, actually, you know, you can get really great quality, local, organic or free range red meat. Support it's your actually, farmers. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. better than the avocado that's been shipped from California or wherever. You know, I, we've, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Uh, I've received some 
we'll say not so kind uh, feedback <laughs> when I talk about it. But I think for the most part, like 95%, you know, of my listeners are on board with what I'm saying. And then there's, you know, some people that you just invariably don't mean to offend, but do. Um, but this whole kind of anti-meat thing, and I'll, I'll say this, and, you know, I'd love, I'd love your perspective on this um, as well. It seems to sort of originate and like, I'm not poo-pooing on San Francisco, but I'm going to poo-poo on them a little bit. It's like from California, you know, Encinitas or like these, like, you know, where it, it's almost this virtue signaling that comes at like, I don't eat meat. You know, it's good for the, you know, I'm just, I'm doing good by the planet, except you're in California, let's say, and you've, you're eating an avocado that's been shipped in from Colombia or, or from Mexico or something. Mm. So, you know, the, the environmental impact of the food that you're consuming, the avocado or whatever, you know, the, the pollution that the truck has to emit into the, in, into the uh, atmosphere to bring you your avocado is one thing, you know, the vegan argument also, there's a huge environmental impact on consuming vegan foods. We have, you know, the environmental, uh, you know, all the fish and the rabbits and the bunnies and the voles and the insects and all the things that are decimated from these monocrops of corn and soy. And then there's this, and this is the piece that I would love your thinking on is the, um, the ethical piece of it. You know, I had uh, Rob Wolf on the show and I referenced this conversation often because it's one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show. And one of the things he said was veganism is kind of a cis white male philosophy for life. And that's why I sort of like, I'm like California, it's coming from San Francisco because not all areas of the world have the geo, like the topography to have these vast swaths of monocrops. And he used the example of you know, areas in the Middle East, let's say, where it's very, you know, very mountainous. And the only way that some of these women that live there, you know, because of the cultural constructs, you know, they're not able to own land, they're not able to, you know, own their own homes, but they're able to participate in animal husbandry. So yeah. that's the only way that these women are able to provide for their families is through the selling of, you know, the goats or the, you know, whatever it is that they're, that they're raising. And so this idea of everyone should be vegan, um, I think doesn't take into account the vast diversity, first of all, of the planet, because we can't all live off of corn and soy crops. Um, but it's also kind of sexist. Um, and, 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 you know, to a point and to a, 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 maybe a lesser degree, a bit racist as well, because you can't expect everybody to eat that way. And mm -hmm. it also, you know, where we come from, the foods that are traditional to, you know, to our, you know, to our lineage is all like you, you show me Lebanese food and I'll dance, I'll do whatever you want. Like I'm, like, <laughs> I'm basically <laughs> yours. Right. So I, I wonder what your, your thinking is around this, because I do see this pervasive anti-meat and the other, and the other thing I'll add, uh, and I would love for you to comment on this as well, is it's the meat and the lifting heavy weights. Mm. 
these are sort of looked at as very male things like man fire, you know, man want fire, you know, this kind of like men like to eat meat and they like to eat left heavy weights. But I also think that those two things are very important for women. We need to be eating meat, you know, the red meat, as you said, absorbable form of iron for the thyroid, for the bleed week, for hormonal regulation um, and lifting heavy weights again, for some of the same reasons, right? Hormonal regulation, being a glucose disposal agent, having, you know, your muscle is basically your metabolic currency. So I've been rambling on trying to hopefully form a, a cohesive thought. I would love for you to comment on, on all of that. Yeah. So I think what's really interesting and you touched on it is this idea of bio-individuality and we're all different. We're not all, we shouldn't all eat in the same way. And then if you think you add on the kind of the cultural and the geographic element to it, you know, you have some thinking about the kind of the, some of the hunter gatherer tribes where if you go up North and you think about, you know, in near the Arctic circle, they're eating, they're surviving on like predominantly meat. And that's their kind of cultural, that's their cultural way of eating. And they, they thrive. And it's only when you start to introduce some of the processed foods that you see some of the health issues that are quite common in Canada, in the UK, in the U S but then in parallel, then you have other cultures in different parts of the world where they just naturally eat a more vegetarian diet and they do really well on that. So I think what's really important is that we remember that there's no one size fits all and that, yes, there is a lot of power in that we get on in many different ways from eating really high quality red meat, but some people, they just don't don't do well on it. And we can't, I think we just need to be careful when we say, you know, everyone should eat red meat. Like I think when, like 99% of the women I work with, when I ask them to introduce meat, we have a conversation. Is it cultural? Is it environmental? If they're open to it, I start gently pushing the door open, you know, just in a very gentle way they will feel better. They just, they just will. Um, but then you have other people, they're just, you know, just, just don't want to go there. So we look at how we optimize the iron in other ways, you know, the copper, all of those different cofactors that help, you know, help us feel better. Answering a question about lifting heavy weights, lifting heavy things. I like, there's no argument for me on that. I think muscle building is so important for women. And once you see women adding on muscle, and this isn't about lifting, you know, you don't have to do some like power lifting or start, you know, you know, doing loads of bench presses. This could just be resistant training where, you know, in, if you've got a yoga practice, you are doing those kind of vinyasas and things like that, where you're using your body body weight, because as you say, muscle is a metabolic tissue. And after, I think the stat is that I think it's age 35, you know, we start to lose about two to 3% of muscle every year. And then when you throw in the menopause on top of that, and thinking about bone health, it's so it's even more important to be maintaining that muscle mass where you can, you just see women who are, 
you know, in that post-menopausal stage, they just feel so much better when they've got some sort of weightlifting or resistance training practice um, in their movement schedule. So, you know, I think the conversation around red, red meat is really powerful, but, you know, it has to fit in for you culturally and digestively, you know, that's a whole other conversation right. where you get, I, uh, I got told recently, oh, I can't eat red meat because it rots in your stomach. Oh my. <laughs> there are many people who think that, that it takes, I've, I've heard, oh, it, it stays in your system for three to five days and it, you know, rots in your, as you were saying, like putrefies in the stomach. It's like, that's not what happens. No, I mean, if it's putrefying, that's, you know, you need to go to the hospital. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just about unpicking all of these misconceptions around not only red meat, but about nutrition in general, because I think people get really dogmatic about their approach. And then once you get into a certain way of eating, well, that's, it's worked for me. Therefore it's going to work for everyone else. And it's just, it's just not like that. And that's the kind of beauty of the work that we do where we see so many different people and we're able to kind of recognize the bio individuality um, and kind of work with that. Yeah. And I think uh, to your point, uh, the name of the practitioner, doesn't matter, but uh, there was a practitioner on Instagram, uh, maybe maybe a month or two ago now, uh, who was talking about fruit, and he was trying to make the uh, point that it contains fructose and therefore, you know, is very metabolically uh, disadvantageous. It's going to cause you know a whole host of things, um, and there was quite an uproar. I know I, I saw your comments as well. Um, on, on this particular part. And it's, it's that type of cherry picking, like that type of, um, you know, for, and I'll, and I'll, you know, for in the spirit of like openness, like I run a ketogenic style program for women, but I, one of the tenants is that you should not be there forever. Mm. <laughs> you go into the keto, you get a little metabolic flexibility, you learn how to pull uh, energy from your adipose tissue, and then you move out of it because mm. you shouldn't be there um, forever. And so one of the big questions is, oh, can I have fruit? And it's like, Absolutely, you can have fruit and you should have fruit. Um, you know, we had Dr. David Perlmutter on the show and we were talking about, he wrote a book called Drop Acid and we were talking about the role of fructose and, and uric acid production. And what's really interesting is that most fruit have other compounds in them that actually reduce the amount of, in this case, uric acid production. Like we were using the example of an apple and things like peck, like, yes, apples have fructose. Uh, yes, that's going to, you know, if that's the only thing that you eat in isolation, I mean, we're not talking about nutrient timing and protein and stuff, but let's say you just have an apple. It is going to spike your, your uh, glucose. And of course there's going to be an elevation in fructose, but it also has other compounds that help to mitigate that. It's very different from, let's say having, um, uh, like a popsicle or something, or, you know, some type of processed food that you can't, you know, pick off a tree or pull out of a bush or something. Mm. Yeah. I think moving away from this really reductionist approach when it comes to nutrition and anything really is really important and looking at the nuance and looking at the individual, because, you know, as I said earlier, we're all, we're all different. What works for one person isn't going to ne necessarily work for someone else but 
it's important not to kind of fall into these traps that I see where we're demonizing certain foods because that's just it's just not helpful. It creates guilt. It creates fear around food. And there's just so much, so many beautiful foods out there. Why would we want to be fearful of something that can add so many benefits to our health in so many different ways? Yeah. Let's switch gears for a moment and let's talk about PMS and PMDD. You talk a lot about this on your Instagram handle, which will make sure that we will also, also, let me just say your Instagram handle is a hoot. I love the stuff that you put out on your gram. It's so funny. Like the way you, you know, there was one, I remember, I think I might've even reshared it. It was so funny when you were, you know, pretending to be in your ovulatory phase and you were like in this big leather coat, you know, this big leather sort of pimping jacket. It was amazing. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the difference between PMS and PMDD, because I think that a lot of, again, there's conflation between the two terms. I think that what's often, um, uh, uh, what's commonly thought of PMDD is just a worse form of PMS, which of course is not necessarily the case. Can you, can you de- delineate between uh, both of those for me and yes. for our listeners? Yeah. So PMS is really interesting because we, we get taught, it's another thing that we get taught that we're supposed to feel a certain way right before a period. And we say I'm PMSing. And I find that troublesome because we're putting ourselves in this basket of this of with expectations that we're supposed to feel bad when PMS is it's a syn- syndrome and a syn- syndrome is a collection of symptoms and there's a whole range of different symptoms and so what I love is if you're experiencing certain symptoms say in the week or so right before your period you dig a little bit deeper and you say well what actually going on for me instead of just labeling it pms you're saying well is this PMS prevention anxiety what are the cravings that i'm experiencing and how can i recognize that these are a sign for my body that i need something you know the kind of common one is chocolate being maybe a need for magnesium right. or is it prevention depression you know let's dig a little bit deeper and then we look we move from PMS to PMDD. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which typically happens after ovulation. It's not, as I've seen on Instagram, an extreme form of PMS. It's something completely different. It's something, you know, there's still, as with many women's health conditions, there's still no kind of, there's a lot of theories around the cause of PMDD, there is discussions about it being um, a genetic mutation. So a SNP on the way that that these women handle the post-ovulatory rise in progesterone and that smaller second peak of estrogen. Um, And so this leads to issues around mood regulation. So it can be a spectrum where it can be teariness, anger, all the way through to suicidal ideation. And then you add physical symptoms on top of it. So it's this lethargy, it's muscle pain. It's, you know, this just feeling of not being able to fully engage in your life. And this gets lumped in with PMS and it's completely different. 
And the issue that I see a lot over here is that doctors are still trying to understand PMDD and women get told, oh, we'll take an antidepressant for the last two weeks of your menstrual cycle, stop when you have your period, and then take start taking it again after ovulation. And you and I both know that you know, antidepressants don't work like that. So to be cycling on and off of a really powerful medication causes further issues because you think about the effect that these medications have on gut health. And, you know, with PMDD, there's theories about the way that the body uses serotonin as well. So it's a very complex, not very well understood condition and it often gets just kind of lumped in as this kind of psychiatric issue that needs to be treated with antidepressants when it's actually a whole body issue that can be managed in a, in a number of different ways for some women where they are having suicidal ideation it might be beneficial for them to be on an antidepressant for a short period of time where they're feeling like they're so they can feel like they're getting a handle on their situation you know that's not for me to say because i'm not a doctor but i have seen this being beneficial in the past at, along with a more holistic approach but for other women you know that holistic approach from the beginning is super beneficial so i think it's really powerful to understand the difference between the two the two conditions. Yeah. And do we, do you find that, um, are there ways that we can ameliorate some of the symptoms, let's say through nutrition, have you found clinically with your, uh, with your clients that when you're maybe adding in, let's say more zinc or making sure that they're getting choline or making sure that they're, you know, the full complement of B vitamins, um, are being ingested either, you know, in a supplement form, or we're making sure that they're getting the nuts, the seeds, the meats, that kind of thing. Do you find that there is an improvement in symptoms and can, is there a, uh, maybe I know that, you know, keeping this bio-individuality in mind, are there, uh, we'll say, general patterns that you've been able to suss out uh, or been able to tease out, let's say, uh, around nutritional um, uh, remedies that have been helpful? Yes, definitely. So looking at the gut has always been a really great starting point um, because of the connection with mental health, but also hormone metabolism. So that's always a great place to start. So, you know, looking at not only optimizing the, the gut flora, but looking at digestion itself. So simple, very simple, but are, are they having a bowel movement? You know, so many women believe that it's normal just to have one or two bowel movements a week. You know, it's, it's not, it's not <laughs> let the record show that yeah. is not normal. Yeah. Daily bowel movements, at least one a day. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so starting with the gut is really powerful. Something I find really, really helpful is looking at vitamin D. Um, because it, so speaking about um, the people that I see in the UK, there is a huge issue over here with vitamin D deficiency. And we know the effect that it has on um, mood status. And so when you're looking at supplementation, 
in the, you know, testing to see what the status is, if there's a deficiency supplementation, but also when it's sunny, it's been quite sunny over here in London for the last couple of weeks, you know, fingers crossed. It's fingers crossed. Like I spend a couple of summers in London. I know it's always raining there, but you get always used to it. Raining. Yeah. 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 When you're getting that vitamin D from the sun, you know, really taking advantage of being able to top up your levels and getting that really powerful form and also benefiting from that, you know, that serotonin production that happens when you're out, even when you're outside, that is really, really powerful. I found for my, my clients with PMDD, because it's something that they can do quite easily and they feel quite empowered by it because PMDD can feel really dis- disempowering because your moods just feel out of control. So those are two things that I've found, you know, the, some of the things that you've mentioned as well, the zinc, the choline, the B vitamin, B6 is very, very powerful. But those are two two other areas that I always like to look at. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, you'll find people in Florida, like I've had labs from people that live in Florida with deficient vitamin D. So, you know, we all, we all say, oh, London, you know, it's like you bring your umbrella everywhere, but you can have normal vitamin D levels from, you know, someone, a Lond- someone who's living in London and someone who's living in Florida where you might, you might expect, well, they're out in the sun all day long. Well, no, we're not out in the sun all day long. We're indoors under artificial light. And we don't necessarily, not everybody has the opportunity to go out every morning, let's say, and get mm. some of that uh, low solar angle uh, sunlight, or even just midday, you know, some people are in an office all day long. Yeah. So in your, um, in your experience, uh, if someone does have a menstrual cycle, let's say that is, um, we'll say that there's some derangement, maybe the bleed week, maybe there's some, you know, ovulatory pain, maybe there's luteal phase, uh, PMS and, or uh, maybe even uh, uh, the PMDD. How long would you say um, does it take for um, symptoms to start alleviating if they're taking uh, under, under counsel uh, some of the recommendations that you're giving them with the movement and maybe the sun and the D and the, and the stress management? I need to manage expectations here. Everyone is different. Uh, What I've seen is that changes can be seen within the month. You know, if you're really kind of getting things dialed in, really looking at the full picture of your health. So how are you sleeping? Sleep is so powerful. And a lot of us neglect that. Um, how often are you eating? Are you eating enough? Are you adding in the fiber, the greens? Are you eating enough fats, the protein? Are you moving your body regularly? You know, we've talked about the bowel movement, so important when it comes to hormone and menstrual health, but also that kind of connection with the community is so important. So looking at all of that and then supplementation as a kind of cherry on top, Although having said that, it, you know, it, it can be really powerful as very powerful intervention in the beginning when you want to get things moving. Um, you can see changes within the month. So, but everyone is different. Some people, they just respond more slowly. They've got a lot more going on when it, terms, when it comes to the lead for liver support or gut support. It just, everyone's different, but 
you can change your menstrual health. You, you know, you don't have to live with whatever you're experiencing. You can change. And those changes can definitely be seen within three months. Yeah. And I asked that question. It's kind of an unfair question because the, the real answer is it depends. As you said, yeah. right? you have someone with Hashimoto's, you have a convert liver conversion, like you're going to be working with them for several months. And so I, I think that, um, as you said, most women can start to see improvement, even if it is a small improvement within one cycle. Mm. And again, kind of back to that idea that your period is a hormonal report card. It is that fifth vital sign. And when you start, when you start giving the input that your body requires and expects of you, it will start to respond in the way that it is designed to, which is to make you feel like a goddess. Like we should all feel, you know, I used to, you know, my own stories, I used to, you know, just feel like it was a curse for being a woman. I had these absolutely horrendous, like, you know, you were talking about, you shouldn't have to wake up overnight. Like I was waking up overnight. I was bringing, you know, different pairs of pants to my, when I had clinic days and I was seeing patients, I always, first two days, always had two pairs of pants in my bag because I knew that I was going to go through at least one, maybe two. Um, I used to have to get up out of the chair. Like if I was sitting like sort of knee to knee with a patient and then we were both getting up, like I had to get up and like turn the chair around, like, so the patient <laughs> wouldn't see if we'd been sitting oh for a while. Gosh. So I, you know, so I've been through the ringer, but I will say that when I did start making some of the changes within a month, I was like, wow, it actually feels like, I feel like this is what it feels like to menstruate like a goddess. Like it feels really good. I feel connected to my body. You know, I was getting more sleep, more sun, uh, more sort of low level activity, like just little, you know, walks and stuff back, back. You know, I was, I had happened to be on a trip, but I was walking back and forth to breakfast, walking back and forth for lunch, walking after dinner, you know, all these little things added up over the course of a month. And I had a much better period. And I haven't stopped uh, since. And I think that for everyone that's listening, whether you have Hashimoto's, whether you've just always, maybe you've never even connected it, you know, maybe you've just oh. thought, well, mom had it, grandma had it, you know, that's just my lineage. That's just how we menstruate in this family with this gene pool. Um, the, the answer really does uh, lie in some of the things that you discuss um, in, in your book. Uh, and so I'm so thankful that you, that you wrote this book and uh, that you've come here today to talk about it. So if people want to learn more about you um, and um, you know, learn about your work, tell everybody where they can find you, uh, the name of your book, where they can find it, um, Instagram handle, all, all the things. So you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on it's, at Eat Love Move. My website is www.eatlovemove.com. Um, my book is called You Can Have a Better Period, and that is available anywhere you buy books. In Canada, it's available in chapters, which is a thrill for me because I, I'm Canadian and I grew up in Mississauga and there was a big, yeah, there was a big chapters that I would go to just near square one. Shout mm. out to all the Mississaugans that recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> and I would go there and I would browse the books and I would think, oh yes, I'm definitely gonna, you know, my book is going to be on the shelf one day. So it was such a thrill to see that my book was in, in chapters so but you can get it on amazon you know it's basically online available anywhere you buy books and 
um, yeah, come and chat to me. Come listen to my podcast. It's called Period Story. That's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. DM me. Um, I'd love to just have a chat. Like, well, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your book. And uh, so happy we were able to make today work. So congratulations on the book. And uh, I'll have all that information uh, in the show notes. Uh, there'll be clickable links for her Instagram, uh, her website, and uh, where you can buy the book worldwide. Thank you so much, Lenise. This was great. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 